Hey there, and thanks for tuning in to a message from New King Church. We're a church located in South Burlington, Vermont, and our prayer is that this resource would help you find and follow Jesus. If you want to know more about our church and the ministries we have, check us out at newkingchurch.com. Good morning. My name is Valerie, and I'll be reading today from Genesis chapter 18, verses 16 through 33. When I finish reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and please respond with thanks be to God. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a might, great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the ways of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken... To speak to the Lord, I am, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for a lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again, he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to New King. I'm so glad you're here today on this beautiful day. I can't believe anybody's here on a day like this in Vermont. I'm so thankful. So uh, my name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here at New King. And uh, we have been preaching through Genesis. And we're in this section which is the life of Abraham, and we call it the God of promises. And you heard in this passage um, about one of God's promises to Abraham. And what we're seeing as we look at the life of Abraham, we're seeing the relationship between God and Abraham intensifying. Remember, between chapter 12 and 22, God speaks uh, eight separate times to Abraham. Eight times. And he's bringing him along. The, the relationship is intensifying. And today, in this passage, what happens is astonishing. Are you ready? Bring it, he says. All right, let's pray first. Uh, Father God, we ask that you would help us this morning to understand the principles that, that you have brought to our attention in this passage. Help me, Father, to speak. Give me the power through your Holy Spirit to speak clearly and to be obedient to the word. Father, help us all to hear what the Spirit has for the churches this morning. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. 
three parts, introduction, exposition, application, introduction. Last week, at the beginning of 18, we saw that Abraham was sitting out in front of his tent, the heat of the day, probably taking a little nap, and he wakes up, and there's three men standing in front of him. Turns out one of them is the Lord, and two of them are angels. And Abraham immediately shows them hospitality, and they have this wonderful meal together, this fellowship dinner. And the Lord is there, but he's interested. Remember last week? He's interested in Sarah. Where is your wife, Sarah? And she's in the tent with her ear pressed up to the door, listening. And we saw that there was this most intimate conversation where God repeats the promise to her, even though not face-to-face, she's in the tent. And it's a beautiful, intimate portion where God takes the time to see her and to speak to her. Now this week, we are going to see God turning back to Abraham. And the relationship is intensifying, as I said. There's a, there's a Bible scholar down at Gordon-Conwell named Paul Borgman, and he wrote a book on Genesis. And he said, the relationship now is a partnership. It's becoming a partnership. That's what we're seeing at the end of this chapter. And uh, God and Abraham are partners. They're working together to accomplish something. What? To bless the nations. But now, God decides, I'm going to destroy a couple of these nations or a couple of these cities. And the partner, Abraham, has something to say about that. And that's the introduction. That's where we begin. So, Valerie, thank you for reading all of that. I thought it would be good to read that whole section so you can see what happens. And in my exposition, I am going to break it into two parts. 16 to 21, God shares his plans and invites Abraham into a conversation. Part two. It's on page two. Uh, 22 to 33, the rest of the chapter, Abraham intercedes. So part one, God shares his plans, invites Abraham to talk. The second part, Abraham intercedes. Verse 16. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. So, so this particular spot that they're at is overlooking the plain, and there's actually five cities in the plain. Sodom and Gomorrah are two of them. So they're looking it all over, and uh, Abraham went with them as the good host, as the good hospitality guy that he is, to set them on their way. I'm going to walk you to the car and make sure you get off okay. So he sets them on their way. And then it says in verse 17, the Lord said, Shall I hide? From Abraham, what I am about to do. Shall I hide it? It's kind of like when you go to somebody and you say to them, I don't know if I should tell you this or not. You know you're going to tell them. You've already made up your mind you're going to tell them. This is the same kind of thing. God says, shall I hide from him what I'm going to do? See, the partnership is developing. We didn't see this before. This is new in this section, in this conversation. Shall I hide from him? And the answer, of course, is no. He's going to tell him. He's going to let it out. He's going to show him. He's going to tell him what he's about to do. Verse 18, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. So, So why is Abraham being told this? Why is God going to share this with him? Because he's a partner, 
And Abraham has a function. He has a role. He has a purpose. Again, this harkens back to chapter 1 of Genesis where God creates things by his spoken word and gives them function and purpose. This is how God works. You and I are no different. We are new creatures in Christ. We have purpose. We have function. We have roles. No different here. And what's Abraham's role? There it is. Verse 18, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. He is a channel of blessing. We learned about this a few weeks ago. Abraham is a channel of blessing, not just to his family, but to the nations of the world. This is how God works. Again, this is how God works. Now we come to verse 19. This is a crucial verse. For I have chosen him. That's how it starts. The word chosen. If you have the ESV Bible, which is what we preach from here, there's a little footnote. And down at the bottom of the page, it says known. I've chosen him. I've known him. I've known Abraham. I've had an intimate relationship with him already. I've chosen him. I know him. Paul Borgman, the scholar from Gordon Conwell, says, I've embraced him. Kind of interesting. Another guy, Old Testament scholar, John Golden Gay, says, listen to this. I've taken notice of him. That's what Golden Gay says. I've taken notice of him. I've seen him. I've seen him. And going back to last week, Remember last week, if you were here, I talked about hospitality, about how Abraham showed hospitality to these three people that came. What is hospitality? In a nutshell, it's seeing someone. I see you. And it's not just I see you over there, it's I see you and I'm going to go to you. Isn't that what hospitality is? That's what happens with Sarah. God says, okay, she's in the tent. Where is Sarah? Oh boy, got her attention. God sees her. God speaks to her. That's, in a nutshell, what hospitality is. I see you, and I go to you, and I engage you. Starts with seeing. Yeah, you get that? Does it make sense? Yeah. So, I've seen him. So this idea of chosen embracing, knowing in an intimate way, I see you. I've chosen him, part two in verse 19, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. See, again, this gets into the purpose, the role, the function. And what is it about? It's about his children. I could preach a sermon at this point in time, on the principle of teaching our children the way of the Lord. Don't have time for that. You know what that means. It means sitting down with them in the morning. It means rising up with them at lunch. It means in the evening. It means being with them and showing them and teaching them about who God is and what he does. We're commanded to do that as Christians. And God starts this off by saying, This is one of the purposes I have for you to lead your family because I have plans for them. And then the last part, it says, um, verse 19, uh, keep the way of the Lord. How? How are they to do it? By doing righteousness and justice. Righteousness and justice. And justice, that's what the way of the Lord looks like. Those two things, righteousness and justice. Righteousness. To live before God with integrity and transparency. To live before God with integrity, being true, and transparency. And to order the community, your family, the people around you, in the same way. To order the community accordingly. 
and integrity and transparency before God and justice to see the oppression. To see it and to walk away from it and forget all about it and say, yeah, too bad about No, <laughs> of course not. To see the oppression and to do something about it. Two things to do about it. Restore the broken community. Restoration, to restore. That's how God works. But also to deal with the oppressors. To stop them. And maybe punish them. So, righteousness and justice. And they're looking out over Sodom. They're looking at the cities of the plain. And they have not practiced the way of the Lord. They are not living in righteousness and justice. And there's a result of that. Verse 20, then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave. There's an outcry. Dan mentioned this in the introduction a few minutes ago. There's an outcry. I want to focus on that word outcry for a moment. Bruce Waltke, another Old Testament scholar, wrote, written a great commentary on uh, Genesis, says that the term specifically refers to oppression. An outcry comes from people that are oppressed. They're downtrodden. They're persecuted. They're desperate. And this term, outcry, comes. And they cry out about their oppression, and they cry to God. Now, the people that were in Sodom and Gomorrah were oppressed. What did that look like? I want to talk about that for a minute. Uh, if you wouldn't mind, Dan, there's a verse in Ezekiel. Could you go to that verse? Uh, it's in chapter 16, verses 49 to 50. Uh, listen to this, what this says. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but they did not aid the poor and the needy. See, they, they, they weren't willing to do something about the injustice. They, they had pride. They had extra food. They were prosperous. They didn't aid the poor and the needy. That is one of the sins of Sodom. When we think of Sodom, we think of something else, and I'm going to get to that in the next verse. But this is where it starts. There's an entitlement that comes with prosperity and excess that makes you oppress people and that makes you not hear their cries. You don't want to deal with it. And as that progresses, something else happens. Verse 50 says, they were haughty, again, the idea of pride, an idea that they can do what they want to do I will do whatever I please. Whatever pleases me, I will do. And they did an abomination before me. An abomination, something dirty, to be honest with you, is what the word means. Unclean. Sexual sin. And we know what happens in the next chapter, the two angels go down and they experience it for themselves. That was their sin. And the outcry, the outcry goes up. The cry of oppression. The Bible has certain, certain themes. I like to call them trajectories. 
something starts and it echoes through from start to end. This is one of them, the cry of the oppressed. Do you remember in Genesis chapter four, there's murder. Cain kills Abel. And his blood cries, the ground cries over this injustice, over this violence, over this oppression. It begins there. We see it here. We see it in Exodus. The people are in slavery. And the outcry, they cry to God. And in Exodus 2.23, their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. God heard their groaning, and God remembered what? Their, his covenant with Abraham. That's interesting. So you see this trajectory of a cry going out and God acts, he does something about it. He hears the cry of the oppressed and it echoes throughout scripture until finally we get into the book of Revelation and we see uh, in the sixth chapter there are those, this odd scene, those that were slain for the testimony of Jesus, and they look at God and they say, how long, oh God? And the outcry continues. The prayers continue. The trajectory continues. And then we read that there's a golden bowl in the book of Revelation. This bowl made of solid gold, and there's something in it. Anybody know what's in it? Prayers of the saints. Why would you put something in a golden bowl? What are you doing with it? You're illustrating how valuable it is. The cries of the oppressed are incredibly valuable to the God of the heavens and the earth. So the outcry goes forth. How am I doing on time? Not bad, not too bad. Okay. So, what happens? Verse 21. God says, I'm going to go check it out. I'm going to investigate. I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I'll know. He's going to go investigate. He's going to go down to see. That may bring to mind the Tower of Babel in a couple chapters before where God says, I'm going to go down and Check this out. And you may think, what's going on here? This is God. Doesn't he, can't he just know what's happening? He already knows what's happening. Why is, he, why is he going down? Why do we have these stories where God takes on these human forms and goes and does things? I'm going to have a meal. I'm going to walk with you. Let's talk. I'm going to share my thoughts with you. Here's what I'm thinking about doing. Uh, I'm going to go down and check. Why does he do that? This is the God of the universe. To make himself accessible to us so that we can understand in our pity lives, in our little puny human forms, who God is. So he makes himself accessible. And he says, I'm going to have a walk. I'm going to come down and have a look so that we can understand who God is. So he investigates. So the summary of the first part, God shares his plans with his partner, Abraham, his friend. You know, uh, three times in scripture, Abraham is called the friend of God. And what do you do with a friend? You share things with him. You say, hey, you know, uh, this fall I'm going to take a trip. We're going to go. You, you share. I'm thinking about a new job. Uh, you share your life. You share your plans with your friend. Abraham is a friend of God. And all of this, if you look at the big picture of this first section, God is inviting Abraham into the discussion. He wants to hear from him. He wants to say, okay, we're partners now. I'm going to share with you. And he wants to have a discussion about it. So now we come to the second part, 22 to 33. Abraham intercedes. 
So the angels leave, verse 22. The men turn from there and went towards Sodom. It's not till they get down into Sodom that we learn they're angels, but that's what they were. And they leave Abraham alone. What better time to talk? These two guys are gone. Now it's just who? It's God, the Lord, in the form of a man, and Abe. Just those two. They're together, right? And what happens in this section is astonishing. It says, Abraham stood before the Lord in verse 22. He stood before the Lord. They're face to face now. They're face to face. Some Old Testament Hebrew manuscripts have it the other way around. They say God stood before Abraham. Wow. That almost shouldn't be. Some people think that when the, uh, the copyists made copies of the manuscripts, they couldn't stand to have God standing in front of Abraham as if he's going to report to him, so they switched it around. But now they're face to face. They're truly partners. They're almost like equals in a way. And then it says in verse 23, then Abraham drew near. Wait a minute. I thought they were like great face to face. What do you mean? Drew near? He took another step towards him? Got six inches closer? Got a foot closer? What does that mean? He drew near. Another uh, Old Testament scholar, Hebrew scholar, by the name of Robert Alter, wrote a great book um, that I've read on, uh, on biblical narrative in the Old Testament. And he said that this word is a technical term that is used in a court of law. He drew near. He approached the bench. A technical legal term. He approached the bench. And what does he do? If that's the case, what does he do? He functions as a defense attorney, an advocate in the rest of this chapter, an intercessor, a priest. This is how he acts. He acts as a prince. And you know the story. He brings a case, he uses examples. And the story plays out for 50, for 45, for 40, for 30, for 20, for 10. He brings his case before God face-to-face as a defense attorney would do to a judge. This is the scene that we're seeing here. And that is a priestly function. Now, we had a hint of a priest a couple chapters ago with this mysterious guy named Melchizedek who showed up. He was a priest of the Most High God. We don't know what that means for sure. But now we see in this chapter an extended example of what a priest does. You and I are really shadowy when it comes to a priest. We're not quite sure what a priest is or does. If you grew up in a certain Christian tradition, you have an idea maybe of what a priest is, and you know that, that you know, maybe it's not that. So let's look at a scripture to see what a priest does. Uh, if you wouldn't mind, Hebrews 5.1. Every high priest chosen from among men, this is talking about priests, is appointed to do what? To act on behalf of men or people in relation to God. This is what a priest does. This is a priest's main function. Appointed to act on behalf of other people, to intercede for them, to be a defense attorney for them in relation to God. A priest is a bridge between other people and God. That's what a priest does. That's what a priest is, to intercede, 
to advocate, to, to connect them together, to plead their case. And Abraham begins with his opening statement in this defense. The end of 23, Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? This is his opening argument. This is the first thing that he says. Is this what you will do? And then he brings a case study. Verses 24 and 25. He says, suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you shall the judge of the earth do what is just. This is his opening statements. This is his argument. This is his case study. What is he doing? Tim Keller says that he starts out by pleading the law. He starts out by pleading the law. What does that mean? He recognizes who God is and how he acts. He's pleading the law. Shall not the judge of the earth do what is just? It's a rhetorical question. Of course he's going to do what is just. Far be it from you. He pleads the law. He, that's how he starts out. And then there's a surprise. Who does Abraham intercede for? Who does he plead the case for? Who does he pray for? you would think that he would say, listen, God, you know, I've got uh, some relatives in Sodom. There's this nephew of mine named Lot. He's got a wife. He's got a family. Can you just save him? Can you get him out? Isn't that what human nature would do? You think of your own? But the surprise is Abraham doesn't mention Lot. What does he mention? Who does he intercede for? The city. He intercedes for the city and everybody in it. That's a surprise. Who's in the city? Rotten Canaanites. The oppressors. He's going to bat for everybody. The oppressors too. That's the surprising part of it. He has a heart for everybody. You see that? This is shocking. This is surprising. Will you sweep away the place and not spare it, he says. And then, verse 26 to the end, Abe persists. And God agrees every step of the way. He pushes and he pushes and he pushes from 50 to 45 to 40 all the way down to 10 face to face with God. Who would do such a thing? A friend of God would do it. The priest of God, he's acting like a priest. He's interceding not just for his family. He doesn't even mention them. He's interceding for the city, the wicked city. You get that? He's interceding for the wicked city and he pushes and he pushes and he pushes it. And there's two characteristics that come out as you read through that. The first one is obviously the boldness of Abraham. The boldness to go before God and time and time again ask, okay, God, how about 30? Okay, how about 20? He persists. He's bold. He says it. But there's another characteristic. He's humble. Yeah? He has humility. Oh God, I am dust and I am ashes. Oh God, I don't want to make you mad. I, he has humility. He has boldness. And he has humility. Those are the two most important characteristics of a priest. 
you got to have both. And he has it. He's got both. He has boldness and he has humility. And God agrees with him every step of the way, again and again and again and again. What is going on here? Abraham's actions, his persistence in his intercession, illustrates an astonishing principle about God. God, you ready? Listen. God will forgive the wicked many on account of the righteous few. You get that? He is going to forgive the whole city. What about 50? He'll forgive the whole city on account of 50 righteous people and 45 righteous people and 40 righteous, all the way down through. He will forgive the wicked many on account of the righteous few. God... God is so predisposed to forgiveness and mercy, he is willing to forgive the wicked many on account of the righteous few. This is who our God is. He is so predisposed to kindness and forgiveness and mercy that he will forgive the wicked many on account of the righteous few. 50 out of a city will accomplish forgiveness. 45, all the way down to 10. To say it another way, God will credit the wickedness with righteousness of somebody else. God will credit the wicked with the righteousness of somebody else. This is a deep and profound theological truth about who God is. And can you see now where this is going? Forgiving the wicked many on account of the righteous one. You see, judgment is God's strange work. There's a, there's a passage in Isaiah 28 talking about him judging Israel. And it says it's his strange work. And when we see what happens with Israel in the Old Testament and how God pleads with them and sends them prophets again and again and again, he doesn't want to come in. He wants them to repent. Most of the Old Testament is about that. And all the prophets come in. And finally God says, I can't take it anymore. I'm going to come in in judgment. And the Babylonians come in. And they attack the city. And they starve it out. And finally the wall breaks down. And in they come. And the temple is destroyed and the people are murdered. And a few good ones are dragged away as prisoners to Babylon. And God is just. But then you read the book of Lamentations. Lamentations of Jeremiah. Five songs where the prophet Jeremiah cries out about the horror of the judgment and how terrible it is and he's upset by it and he doesn't like it and he weeps and he wails. That's Jeremiah. No, that's not Jeremiah. That's God doing that. That is who God is. He is just. He can't deny himself. But when he does it, it's not what he wants to do. He cries. He weeps. Matthew's gospel, 
Seven woes. Jesus comes and he pronounces seven woes about Israel. Woe unto you, woe unto you, woe unto you. How does the chapter end? You know how it ends. Jesus turns and he weeps. And he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. I wanted to gather you like a mother hen gathers chicks. But you would not. You see, justice breaks God's heart. And so... This chapter unfolds. And Abraham goes home. Verse 33. The Lord went his way. When he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. He went home. He went back to his tent. He went back to his, where he was hanging out, where he had the big meal. He goes home. Why? Did Abraham stop at 10? You see, if you know stories and you know how stories unfold and you know how literary methods work, what you're expecting is him not to stop at 10. Maybe the next number is five. Maybe he goes down to one. That's what we're expecting. But for some reason, he stops at 10. Why? He goes home. He's done. Maybe he lost his nerve. Maybe he said, oh my word, what am I doing? I'm face to face with God. I've, he's, he's getting sick of me. He's, his patience is worn thin. I'm going to stop at 10 maybe. Maybe he thought, if I went down to one, who's that one? It's that dumbhead lot. I know what's going to happen with him. Yeah, he's a little more righteous than the others, but he is no shining example of what it means to live in, in righteousness and justice. His whole story is about conflict. And if I go down to one, I, all I got is, is Lot, and I know what's going to happen then. So Abram goes home. And what happens in the next chapter or two? God comes in. And he finds that the cities are indeed not living in righteousness and justice. And he doesn't find his ten. And the cities are destroyed. The angels visit Sodom and they experience for themselves the wickedness. And God destroys the cities. One of the things we've been learning about in our story of Abraham is, yes, Abraham is a father of the faith. Yes, Abraham is a friend of God. Yes, God, Abraham believed God and counted it unto righteousness. Abraham wasn't perfect. He stopped at 10 and he went home. What do we learn from this story? A couple of closing things for us to take away that are relevant to you and I today. Number one is that principle. What was the principle that Abraham was acting upon? God will forgive the wicked many on account of the righteous few. And we know, as Christians, that God forgives the wicked many on account of the righteous one. Don't we? Jesus. Jesus bears the justice of God. He drinks the cup of wrath. He he suffers the penalty for our sin. The righteous one, the perfect one, the obedient one, so that we might become righteous. He bears the justice so that we can become righteous. This is what this story is pointing to of one, one thing. There's a verse in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5. For our sake. For whose sake? Say it. For our sake. 
For our sake, you sitting here in this room, for our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. He was the righteous one. He was the perfect one. He was the sinless one. God made him sin, treated him as sinful. He got the punishment we deserve so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is a transaction. It's insane. Jesus, the righteous one, became sin, was treated as sin, was the cursed one, was nailed to a cross so that we that are sinful could become righteous. That's the gospel. There it is. Point two. Abraham went home. We have a high priest that doesn't go home. He doesn't go home. Uh, Hebrews 7, if you wouldn't mind. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. This is our high priest. Not only is he our sacrifice, not only is he the one that bore the penalty of sins, he now functions as a high priest who never goes home. He advocates, he intercedes, he pleads your case forever. And what does he plead? He pleads his blood. I died for that person. I shed my blood for that person. And the result, saved to the uttermost. Completely, exhaustively, utterly. There's nothing left undone. He makes provision for every need. He suffered and paid for every sin that you have or will commit, past, present, and future. He is our high priest. He never takes a day off. He never goes to bed early. Forever. What does this look like? What does this mean? How how do I understand that? Think of Peter. Remember what Jesus said to Peter? It's in... uh, It's in Luke 22. Jesus says, Peter, Satan wants you. But I have prayed for for you that your faith may not fail. I have interceded for you. I have prayed for you. Satan wants you. I've prayed for you. And when you have turned, Jesus says, strengthen your brothers. He's the intercessor that never goes to bed. Point three, we in turn, we have this wonderful, perfect high priest that can sympathize with us, that never takes a break, that never goes home, and in turn, we are priests. We have become part of the priesthood. We perform that function as well. First Peter says we are holy. We're a holy priesthood that we may offer up spiritual sacrifices. First Peter says we're a royal priesthood, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And what do we do? Remember those two characteristics that, that Abraham had, boldness and humility? Man, we have those too. We have to have those. We approach God with boldness and humility. The last verse I want to share, Hebrews 4. Since then, we have a high priest. Just talked about that. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed into the heavens, into the very presence of God. Who? Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, 
with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in time of need. There's humility. We're sinners. He talks about sympathizing with our weakness. He can sympathize. He can understand. He knows what we've gone through. Yet boldness. We go with confidence. We go with boldness. And finally, what about today? What about Burlington, Vermont? If this is all true, what about Burlington? First, our presence here. Yours and mine, as Christians, as believers, as those bought with a price, have an influence here. We are here for a reason. We are here with a purpose. Remember Sodom. The very presence of a righteous few could have saved the many. We are here with a purpose. And we are priests. Are we interceding for Burlington? and the surrounding towns? Are we praying for them? Are we living and bringing justice and righteousness to the city? Are we seeing the oppressed, hearing their cry like God hears their cry, and seeing them and doing something and acting? For the city, not just for the few. Are our hearts large enough for that? I know people in this congregation that spend a tremendous amount of time downtown doing justice and righteousness face-to-face with the oppressed people, and I thank you for it. We all need to do that more. And we do it based on our understanding of Jesus. We don't go and we do it in our own energy and say, yeah, I'm going to do what Eric said. I'm going to go and I'm going to... No, 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 no. We understand who Jesus is. We understand who God is and how he works. And we go in his strength because of who we are. We're bought with a price. We're redeemed. We're saved to the uttermost. We are priests. And if we understand the priesthood of God and we understand our priesthood, we go with boldness and humility and dependence. Because our priest didn't go home. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this passage. We ask that you would help us to understand you, Father, and how you work in this world. We thank you for Jesus and his high priesthood. Father, help us to see that and to go with boldness and humility to bring justice and righteousness. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.